NPR. Hey, Waylon, what's in your social media feed nowadays? Well, on Facebook, it's mostly local news, like what the local moms are up to in my town. Uh On TikTok, I'd say Taylor Swift, this romance fantasy series I've gotten into, and like makeup tutorials. I love the breadth here. (laughs) Uh, I am not so much on Facebook or Instagram these days, but I do tend to get sucked into these like YouTube rabbit holes, Mm. these kind of nerdy videos where drummers explain the drum parts for songs. Okay, so then, like, now that YouTube knows you like this, they're like, how about this drummer? How about this drummer? Yes, click, click, click. And I I just live on YouTube now. (laughs) You know, even though it can feel like the platform is simply serving up what it thinks you want, whether it's drummers or Taylor Swift, there's no escaping the fact that your experience on social media is filtered. Yeah, and whether you like that or not, It doesn't stop us from collectively spending hours and hours on social media. And all this is why our feeds have become one of the latest battlegrounds over First Amendment rights. This is The Indicator for Planet Money. I'm Adrian Ma. And I'm Waylon Wong. In a few days, the U.S. Supreme Court will hear a case that pits conservative state lawmakers against a trade group that represents some of the biggest social media companies in the world. Today on the show, we unpack a case that has the potential to upend how social media companies shape our online experience. For a long time, social media companies had this stance towards posts with false information. They essentially said, you know, we're not publishers, we're a platform, so we're not going to mess with these. This really started to change in 2020. That's when Facebook and Twitter began actively flagging COVID misinformation on their platforms. Soon after, they also began flagging misinformation about the 2020 presidential election. Then, in January 2021, after supporters of then-President Trump rioted at the U.S. Capitol, Facebook and Twitter took a big step of banning Trump, who many blame for inciting the riot. For some conservatives who felt social media companies were suppressing voices from the right, This was a galvanizing moment. I think it had been brewing for a while, and that was sort of the catalytic event, right? Lynn Greenkey is a professor emeritus at Syracuse University. She's also the author of the book When Freedom Speaks, The Boundaries and Boundlessness of Our First Amendment Right. The social media platforms all have these content moderation policies. What speech they allow gives them the power and the right to remove whatever speech they want to. And in steps Florida and Texas and said, I don't think so. A few months after Trump was banned on Facebook and Twitter, lawmakers in Florida and Texas decided to pass new laws. Conservative voices were being muzzled, is what their words were using, on the social media platform. They felt had a a liberal and progressive bent, and so they wanted to do something about them and make sure that social media platforms could not do that. And so these laws basically say that social media platforms with more than 50 to 100 million users cannot simply censor or deplatform users based on their viewpoints expressed in their posts. If they do, they have to explain why. And if the companies violate the law, citizens actually have the right to sue them. Now, in response to these laws, a group called NetChoice brought its own lawsuits to stop them from going into effect. Why did we do that? Well, this takes us back to our core values of free expression and free enterprise. 
Carl Sabo is an attorney with NetChoice. It's a trade group whose members include Meta, TikTok, and a lot of other tech companies. He says platform moderation policies are not about censorship. They're about companies choosing what kind of speech they don't want to host, like hate speech, for example. For any government to come in and start telling private companies that you have to host this lawful but awful speech is a violation of free expression because just as much as it is my right to allow you to say something on my website. It is my right as the owner of that business to say, I don't want certain types of content there because it's bad for business. It's bad for my customers. It's bad for my advertisers. This is why NetChoice sued and why they wanted their case to get to the Supreme Court. Now, one of the main arguments it's making here hinges on a case from the 1970s called Miami Herald versus Tornillo. And that case coincidentally also involved a Florida law And it's said that if a newspaper criticizes a political candidate, that candidate also has a right to publish their response in that same paper. And the Supreme Court looked at it and said, no, Florida, you can't do that. That's a violation of their First Amendment rights of editorial discretion. You are essentially forcing them to say something they don't want to say, your op-ed. So here in Florida, fast forward, they're trying to do the same thing except replace Miami Herald with the Internet. Beyond the legal arguments, Carl argues that the practical effect of the Texas and Florida laws would mean social media platforms would lose the ability to decide what content is acceptable. That means if I want to allow discussions of why the Holocaust is horrible, I would similarly have to allow discussions and content of why Hitler was right and he should have done more. That's content that most of us would say we don't want. We reached out to the attorneys general of Texas and Florida to hear their side of the argument, but they declined our request for an interview. Still, they do have support from officials in other states who are concerned about social media companies discriminating against conservative voices. Josh Devine is one of these state officials. He's solicitor general for the state of Missouri. State governments have a duty, a constitutional duty, to protect the free speech rights of their citizens. You can't have a representative democracy if your citizens are silenced? How are you supposed to know what your citizens want? How are you supposed to be able to respond to them if they're being censored on social media? Sure, you could call or write a letter to your congressman, but Josh says, let's be real. Social media, particularly sites like Facebook and Twitter, is where a lot more public conversations are happening. He argues these platforms are as central to public life as telephones, which is why we have laws that prevent telephone companies from censoring users. So the real question here is, is Facebook more like a telephone or is it more like a newspaper? And I think the answer to that question is pretty clear. They're much more like a telephone. Hmm. I think a lot of people would say, like, it's clearly social media is different than a telephone because once you hit send or post, countless people are going to see that. So I'm not denying that Facebook is different from telephones. But if you're looking at a line and you put newspapers on one side and you put telephone companies on the other side, Facebook is just a whole lot closer to telephone companies. This argument is similar to what Texas and Florida are arguing in front of SCOTUS. The states say social media companies should be regulated like as common carriers. Now, common carriage is this concept in the law that basically says certain kinds of companies like phone operators and radio stations and Internet service providers. These are so necessary to people's lives that the Constitution gives governments kind of more room to regulate and ensure equal access to the public. 
The counter-argument is that social media is different. If some users don't like the way that Facebook or Twitter moderate their content, they can find other options. For example, the social media site Parler became popular with conservatives who saw Facebook as too liberal biased. Similarly, Donald Trump launched Truth Social as a right-leaning alternative to Twitter. The internet is so vast that you can always find a platform. Might not be as large, might not be as loud, but it's not like it doesn't exist. Lynn Greenkey, the First Amendment expert from earlier, says she's not that worried about social media users not having enough options. She is worried about the consequences of laws she says seem more like another front in the culture wars than a principled stance on free speech. If the Supreme Court finds constitutional the laws of Texas and Florida, we're in a whole new era, and I don't think it looks good. We're going to have this just tsunami of bad speech, you know, hateful speech. It's going to just infest and infect discourse on these platforms. Really? More, more than it already is? I can't even picture what that looks like. <laughs> I feel like maybe the antidote here is more drum solos. What oh. if we flood the internet with so much drum solo content, <laughs> there isn't room for the hate speech? Take me away, nerdy music explainers. <laughs> this episode was produced by Angel Carreras and engineered by Neil Rauch. It was fact-checked by Sierra Juarez, edited by Patty Hirsch, Kate Cannon is our editor and the indicators of production of NPR. 